Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We are making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, really through the whole Gospel of Matthew, but right now we are in the Sermon on the Mount. If you were here last Sunday, we, uh, we talked about the subject of marriage and sex and lust and adultery. And I told you that there was a lot more to talk about on that issue, and so we are going to pick back up with that again today. I'll just give a brief review of last Sunday's message to catch us up on, on speed, to get us on the same page, and then we'll pick up uh, from there. Matthew chapter 5, and let's read the words of Jesus, verses 27 to 30. Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray together briefly. Heavenly Father, there is no question that adultery and lust and all that goes with those sins has wreaked much havoc in this world. And God, I pray now for anyone struggling with this sin in whatever form or fashion that you would truly grant freedom You grant forgiveness, repentance, and transformation through your gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just to very briefly review part of last week's sermon, I said that we, we, we as Christians have to be people who cannot talk about sex without talking about marriage. Uh, Sex only makes sense within the context for which God created it, and it is a good gift from God. So to review last week with two brief points, number one, the goodness of sex and marriage, and number two, the evil of sex outside of marriage. I mentioned last week that marriage was given for companionship. It is not good for the man to be alone. It was given for procreation. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And it was given most fundamentally for illustration illustrating Christ's commitment to the church. The husband is meant to, in some dim way, reflect the incredible nail-pierced sacrificial servant leadership of Christ dying on the cross for His bride, and the wife is called to come alongside and to follow and support the leadership of her husband in godliness, uh, some, in some way showing the relationship of the church to Christ. And we argue that Marriage and sexuality are good gifts. You don't have to turn to this passage right now. Let me just briefly read from 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Okay, dot, dot, dot. Let's stop for a second. Deceitful spirits, the teaching of demons. Now, just if you didn't know this text ahead of time, maybe you don't know this text, just think, what do you think Paul's going to say? Deceitful spirits, the teaching of demons. I mean, is this going to be the occult? Where are we going with this? It may surprise you what the demonic teaching was. Are you ready? It's 1 Timothy 4.2. Here's the demonic teaching. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, this is sounding pretty bad, 
who forbid marriage. So that's not what I was expecting to hear next, was it? Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by all those who believe and know the truth. That's the demonic teaching. And then Paul says, for everything created by God is good. In context, he means food and marriage. These things are created by God and they are good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is why we pray for our meals, right? Jesus broke the bread and thanked God for it. He blessed it. And so, similarly, not just food is something we should enjoy to God's glory, but marriage, and inside of it, physical intimacy and marriage are meant to be things that we thank God for and we glorify God in. And there have been times in church history that that has not been as clearly taught. I mentioned last week's Song of Solomon. I came this close to reading a full chapter of Song of Solomon to just see how many red faces we would get. I was this close, but I, I, I'll, I'll leave that to you. Go, go read Song of Solomon for more on this. I'll just give you one verse, Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse 1. You remember that it's, the, it's the, the woman and the man are talking to each other, praising each other and delighting in each other, and then there's also the group of friends who are looking on and also uh, speaking into their relationship. And there's a moment where the friends say to this uh, husband and wife, they say, you ready for this? Eat friends, drink and be drunk with love. This is God's unembarrassed blessing on intimacy in marriage. It is not something to be embarrassed by. Eat friends and be drunk with love. Be be passionate about one another in the context of a man and a woman in the lifelong commitment of marriage. Point number two from last week, the evil of sex outside of marriage. I did not read this last week, but one commentator said, the trouble with extramarital sex… What's the problem? The the trouble with extramarital sex is that it is a life-uniting act committed without life-uniting intent. It's a life-uniting act. The two become one flesh without life-uniting intent. The purpose of that act is to say, all that I am is yours, all that you are is mine, till death do us part. And when that is taken outside of the promises of marriage and used wrongly, we are lying with our bodies in that act, saying with the act of, I'm with you forever when I'm not really committed to you or I'm not going to be with you forever. Remember, the analogy, sex is like fire. Within the confines of the fireplace, you think, listen, of all the places fire can be in your home, it's a pretty small amount of spaces. It can, it can exist, right? You've got this tiny little area, this fireplace, and there are edges. There are parameters, right? There are limits. And it looks like we're constraining the freedom of the fire. And in one sense, we are. But by, con- by proper constraints on something that is good and potentially dangerous, proper constraints create life and joy and warmth in the home. When we remove the constraints of the fireplace, we think that we are finding liberty and freedom, and we find soon our house is burning to the ground. Okay, we want the proper constraints. God is not trying to steal your joy by putting constraints on sex only for a man and a woman in the lifelong commitment of marriage. He's trying to protect you from harm and danger that you may not even realize is out there. It is for our good. Now, moving into today's sermon. That's last week. This is this week. Uh, Let me give a, a few more introductory comments here. First thing I'll say, and you'll have a question on this tonight for your groups, the battle against lust is most fundamentally, a worship war. We've heard about the worship wars, right? People argue about music in church. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? The worship war is a little different than what songs we're going to sing or the musical style. No, the battle against lust is a worship war. I've heard it said, we 
worship our way into sin, and so we have to worship our way out. We have to understand that deep down, I am looking to get the, the, the desires in my soul satisfied, not in God, but in something He has forbidden, and that is my problem with whatever sin it may be. And we may worship our way into sin, but we are going to have to worship our way out. I love this quote from John Piper, read this many years ago. Listen to this. Our chief enemy is the lie that says sin will make my future happier. Our chief weapon is the truth that says God will make our future happier. And faith is the victory that overcomes the lie because faith is satisfied in God. So, if you hear nothing else today, I hope you hear other things, but if you hear nothing else, the fundamental battle is a worship war. Where will I go for my satisfaction? Will I go to the one who can alone satisfy me, the triune God of the Bible, and find fulfillment in Him, or will I look for it in the husks and ashes of this world and try to find satisfaction there? That's the fundamental battle. All the tips and advice that can be given around that are going to be less than useless if that is not the fundamental battle in your life. To be satisfied in Jesus, to find joy in Jesus, to say, Jesus, I have tried everything there is. Everything has left my soul empty and void. You alone have satisfied. You alone can give me what I need. That's the fundamental battle, knowing God. To back that up, Romans 1, listen to these words. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. They exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the fundamental worship problem, right? We, we, we gave up God. We gave into idols. Therefore, Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Most fundamentally, it's what is the delight of my heart. 1 Thessalonians 4, listen to this. For this is the will of God. I have to say there's a lot of searching for the will of God in this world. God, what is your will for my life? You know, we're, Lord, if that tree branch moves and the other one doesn't, I'll know your will for me is to do… Okay, let's not, let's not play that game, okay? And Lord, if the shadow hits this building but not that building in the next five minutes, I'll know I'm supposed to go to this college or date this person or go to there. Okay, hang on. That's not what we're supposed to be about. But if you want to know God's will for you, I can tell you. I mean, I can tell you with 100% certainty, I know God's will for your life. Every single person in this room, are you ready? For this is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, the unbelievers, who do not know God. Fundamentally, this is an issue of knowing, loving, and worshiping God versus worshiping created things. And I started with the woman at the well for a reason this morning or this afternoon. I started with her. Why? We love this story, do we not? It's one of the most precious stories in all the Bible. Why is Jesus talking to her about thirst and satisfaction? And in the middle of the conversation, Jesus says, hey, can you go call your husband? 
In about three seconds, Jesus is going to reveal that he already knows she doesn't have a husband, that she's had five failed marriages, and she's currently living with a man she's not married to. So does Jesus know her troubled past already? Yes, and yet he, he goes ahead and says, go call your husband. Why, in the context of worship and satisfaction, does he mention her failed sexual history? These are not non sequiturs. These are connected. He's saying, I know the answer that you're looking for, and you're looking for it with this man, and then the second man, and the third, the fourth, the fifth man. Then you stopped with the formalities, and you just started living with a guy. I know what you're looking for, and those men are never going to give it to you. I have living water, and she runs away full of joy at what Jesus has told her. I don't know if, if holiness sounds like a caricature in your imagination. I love this definition from one pastor. Holiness, what is that? It is being so happy in God that sin has no appeal anymore. That's holiness. Being so satisfied in God that sin loses its appeal. All right, the introduction is over. Let's move into our, th- into our main points for the message. And the whole message is framed around this statement, do not be deceived about… And then I have my points. So, do not be deceived about, number one, do not be deceived about, number one, the location of lust, the location of lust. It is very tempting, tell me if you can relate, to think about our battle with sin fundamentally as being about externals, behaviors, and actions that we perform or commit. Is it not easy to slip into that idea? Okay, I said the right word or I did the right thing outwardly with my actions, but Jesus is so clear. That's not where the battle is fought. Do our actions matter? Yes. Does accountability matter? Yes. We'll talk about that in a moment. But that's not where the battle is ultimately fought or lost or won. The battle is fought in the heart. The location of lust starts in the heart. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Yeah, I read this. I thought about King David's horrible sin with Bathsheba. I think this whole list covers what David did in that chapter. Listen again. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Did David have an evil thought on the top of that palace? Murder? Did he have Uriah killed? Adultery, he actually committed it. Sexual morality, yes. Theft, he stole someone's wife. False witness, there was, there was, there was a decep- deception involved and slander. I mean, this, David is largely guilty of all of that. So the battle is in the heart. Here, here's a verse that you've probably heard. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So your life flows out of something. The springs of your life are flowing out of something. Where is your conduct, your thoughts, your actions, your anxieties and your triumphs and your sins and your successes? They're coming from… where are they coming from? They're coming from the control center of my world, which is my heart. My deep affections, my loves, my hates my longings, my loves, they're all down there in my heart. And so, it is of number one priority for Christians to not be naive or unaware of the sins and temptations and problems that exist in our hearts, and we must be aware of them, examine them, and fight them by God's grace so that we can keep our heart with all diligence because from it comes all the rest of 
life. Let me read an illustration from a Christian counselor pastor. This will take a moment to read, but I, I think it's worth hearing this story. I'll try to read it somewhat quickly, so just listen carefully. He, this, is, this came from a counseling event that this man had with a real person, so this is a true story. He was in trouble long before he knew it. As he assessed his life, he concluded that he was okay, but he was not. He saw himself as a mature Christian, a committed family man, and a diligent worker, but he was running toward disaster without any sense of concern or fear. He had worked with her for years. They were on a management team and were often in meetings together. For almost a decade, their relationship had been strictly business, that is, until the day when she asked if she could share a table with him at the executive dining room. That morning had been ridiculously stressful. His children were out of control, and he and his wife were not in a very good place. By the time he left work, everybody was mad at everybody, and his goodbye gesture to his wife was a dirty look rather than his usual perfunctory kiss. He must have had the posture and facial expression of a beaten man because when she sat down with her lunch tray, her opening line was not about business, it was about him. You look like you've been hit by a Mack truck, she said half-jokingly. You have no idea, he responded. Oh yeah, she replied. It's not work, he said. Things are great here. It's home. Sometimes it all just seems impossible. Too many complicated relationships with too many people all at once. It's all I can do to turn off the stress before I get here so I can concentrate on the job and not get myself fired, he moaned. If you're anything at home like you are here, you must be a pretty good husband and father. I'm sure your family is blessed to have you around, she said as she looked at her watch, excused herself, and rushed out of the room. He watched her leave thinking, that was really nice, the most encouragement I've gotten in months. He went back to work in his busy life and didn't think about her for days until they had their first semi-monthly executive meeting. He noticed her in ways that he had not noticed her before. She got his attention in ways that the other participants had not. He tried not to look at her because he didn't want to make her uncomfortable, but he kept looking at her. After the meeting, he went back to his overloaded desk. He tried to deny it, but a couple days later, he was glad that she came into his office to ask him a few departmental questions. Before she left, she asked, are things less stressful at home? He smiled, rolled his eyes, and she exited his office. He sat watching her go, completely unaware that something dramatic and important, potentially life-changing, was happening in his heart. He still thought he was okay. In the kind of denial that seems to accompany these temptations, he told himself that nothing had changed, but it had. He began to come to work hoping that he would see her. No, he didn't want a relationship with her. No, he entertained no thoughts whatsoever of sex with her, but in his heart, his relationship to her had definitely changed. He didn't often eat in the lunchroom but he began to do so regularly. He told himself that it was good for the department, but that's not why he was there. He was there in the hopes that she would be there. She often was, and the occasion of their having lunch together happened with greater frequency. With each lunch, something was happening in his heart. He seemed completely unaware of. His affection compass was increasingly pointed in her direction. He had not abandoned his commitment to his wife, and he surely had not entertained any thoughts of leaving his marriage, but his heart had moved. And because it had, it would not be long before his body would move as well. Their conversations became more frequent, more planned, and more personal, but he still had no sense of danger. The heart that he should have protected Guard your heart. The heart he should have protected long before was now no longer searching or attracted. It was hooked, but he simply did not recognize how hooked he was. And soon after, it says this, or or a little later, it says, he had had weeks earlier committed adultery in his heart. That is, he had shifted the affection of his heart from his wife to his fellow worker, and now he was beginning to commit adultery with his body. They ended up acting out this, and he came to the counselor and sat there estranged from his wife, and he said he'd thrown away a wonderful marriage to a good lady, his relationship to three beautiful children for 20 minutes of sexual pleasure, and he was absolutely at a loss how it could have happened. 
I read that story because so often it is very easy to be naive about this battle. The battle takes place in the heart before it ever takes place in our actions. Here's an application point. How do we guard our heart? One way is to expose inward struggles we have. And if this is not your sin, just pick whatever sin it is that you struggle with. Expose inward struggles of sin with trusted Christian friends. Randy Alcorn says, lust thrives on secrecy. Nothing diffuses it like exposure. Honest communication between husband and wife will also hopefully make them allies, not adversaries. And, and Randy Alcorn, he has this wonderful short little book uh, called The Purity Principle on this topic. And uh, this is what he says. Randy Alcorn writes, One evening I was undergoing strong sexual temptation. It would not let up. Finally, I called a brother I was to have breakfast with the next morning. I said, please pray for me and promise to ask me tomorrow what I did. He agreed. The moment I put down the phone, the temptation was gone. Why? I didn't like to say it was, I, I would like to say it's because I'm so spiritual. The truth is, there was no way I was going to face this guy the next morning and tell him that I sinned the night before after calling him. My friend was my 911 call. How much better to get immediate help, which prevents sin, rather than reporting to my group next week, I blew it again. Honesty about our sin is good, but honesty about our temptation is even better. Who are your 911 friends? Who is someone, whether it's this temptation or another temptation? When you see it there on the horizon in your heart, who can you reach out to and speak honestly with as a 911 call to help you in the moment when you need it? Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Our sins do not like the light, and we need to expose them to the light. Some people… Now, it's always scary to generalize. I know that this is not true of all men or of all women. There's overlap here, and different people struggle with different things, but the Bible generalizes about sins too with regards to men and women, so I'll do it as well. Just being biblical, okay? So, just speaking generally, women are oftentimes drawn to the power that lust offers and men to the pleasure that lust offers. I've heard that said before. And so, there can be a certain sense of being attractive as the form of lust, wanting to attract the gaze to yourself. Men and women can struggle with this, but if you feel the temptation to say, the way I I dress and walk and act and talk, I'm trying to get someone to be attracted to me that is in a relationship where that should not exist, that would be a form of lust or one with wandering eyes and a wandering heart. Let me also ask you this, I mentioned this last week, when are you most likely to struggle and fail? Is it a particular day of the week, a particular time in the semester? Is it a particular time in relationship to work? in relationship to your family, in relationship to the time of day? And what is it? When are you most vulnerable and do all that you can to not walk in to places where provisions for the flesh are made? Let me also say as an application point, again, this is the most important, what stirs your affections for the Lord Jesus and what numbs or deadens your love, delight in, and rejoicing in Jesus? I would sincerely, I've done this before, make a list of everyday things and write down 10 or 20 things that tend to tempt you, not necessarily that are inherently sinful, things that just make you bored with Jesus, numb to Jesus. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? There's certain kinds of scrolling and certain kinds of things that may not be inherently wrong, but they just, for you personally, create numbness spiritually. Write down the top 10 or 20 things that you're tempted to go to that numb you spiritually and deaden your affections for the Lord. Mark them down and do what you must to try to avoid those behaviors and activities. And then write down the top 10 or 20 things that stir your affections for the Lord Jesus and pursue those things with abandonment. All right, don't be deceived about point number two, the power of lust. So, number one was the location of lust. Don't be deceived. It starts in the heart. Number two, don't be deceived about the power of lust. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And as you are turning there, I've heard this quote before, and, and I, this quote can be misused or misunderstood, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in this quote. Are you ready? Listen to this. I'll explain what I mean. Soft preaching creates hard people, and hard preaching ironically creates soft people. Now, let me say what I don't mean. There is a kind of hard preaching that creates hard people just beating your people over the head and not giving them any grace and not giving them the gospel, that will create hard people. I'm not talking about that. But here's what I mean. Soft preaching creates hard people. Preaching that just seems so warm and fuzzy and so just enjoyable and so pleasing and all these nice little things are said and just affirmation after affirmation about you and how great you are and you're God's masterpiece and God thinks you're awesome and your dreams are what God's all about fulfilling. And man, Jesus came out of the grave so that He could fulfill your dreams. Certainly makes you a popular YouTube preacher. I've seen that. But that's soft preaching. It doesn't confront sin. It doesn't have any harsh edges. There's nothing offensive in that gospel message, and therefore it creates self-centered people who love their idols, love their sins, love themselves, and become hard-hearted people. Soft preaching creates hard people. Hard preaching ironically creates soft people. And here's hard truth right here. Are you ready? This is hard truth that I think if you embrace it will make you soft-hearted. Here, here's the truth. You and I have not yet come to grips even a fraction with the power of our indwelling sin even as believers. The depths and capacity of the pull of our sin in whatever direction is far stronger than we even know that it is. And if we are going to make any progress with our walk with the Lord, we have to come face to face with how deep our sin runs. If we are going to be naive about our sin, we will be in trouble in the future. The man in that story at his work, was he naive about the potential of what was in his heart? Yes. And because of that, he was susceptible to falling. Let me just say one more thing before we get to 2 Samuel. Jesus, the, the Lord says to Cain, Genesis 4, 11, 4, 4 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching. It might be lust or something else. But crouching is when a predatory animal with unimaginable strength, like a lion or a tiger, hides its strength and size and power and ferocity by making itself look very small. That's the very meaning of crouching. 
Crouching makes you look small, almost invisible. If you don't even know where the lion is in the grass, you might not even see it until the person points it out to you or the lion starts moving. But you, what, what is our indwelling sin crouches. It's always crouching. It looks smaller and less ferocious than it is. And we try to domesticate it and let it live in our house. You know, I heard people, say, I've heard it said, we, we try to cage our sin rather than kill our sin. We want to domesticate it. We don't want to get rid of all of it. We just don't want it to take over our whole life. So we domesticate it. We cage it. We, we put limits on our sin. We let it have a little bit of room in our home. And we put it in the basement, in the, in the cage. And we feed it sometimes. We don't let it out much, but once in a while. And we think we can tame it. We think we can domesticate, housebreak it, and make this thing do tricks for us. Do exactly what we want when we want. We don't realize we're playing with a creature that wants to take our life, wants to absolutely overpower and master us. And so, don't be deceived by its appearance. It is stronger and more deadly than we think. Case in point, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, I'll paraphrase. David calls the husband, Uriah, off the battlefield, comes back. David says, hey, why don't you take some time, go to your home, be with your wife, you know, enjoy yourself. But Uriah is too dignified to do that. He says, well, the people are fighting in the field. I'm not going to go home and enjoy my wife. I'm going to stay right here at the palace. The next night, David gets him drunk, tries to get him to do the same thing. Even a drunk Uriah has more dignity than David does. He doesn't go back to his home. David then sends him back to the battlefield with a note in his hand that's going to guarantee his death and the death of several other people because we got to cover up what we're doing. Uriah is killed in battle by David's command. David then takes Uriah's wife uh, Bathsheba as his own, and they become married and then Nathan comes and confronts David. David con confesses, repents in, in absolute agony, and the Lord forgives his sin. A few points of application here. Do you think David was planning to do any of the things he did when he got up from the couch that spring afternoon? No. Do you think if you would have told David that he was capable of cold-blooded murder in the next couple of weeks, do you think that he would have said, yeah, no. He would have said, there's no way. That's not even in my mind. And yet, Sin is crouching. It starts with a look. The look leads to a thought. The thought is not fought against, but instead it festers. The thought gets stronger and begins to take over his heart, his will, and his affections. Suddenly, he wants to find out more about this woman. He finds out more about her. Suddenly, he wants to be near her or with her. He sends people to get her. He brings her to the palace. Now, he wants to sleep with her. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. Suddenly, murders, deception, lies. And then the future of his family, the, the, the sword will not depart from your home, all of these consequences, his son even dies as a result of his decision. Don't underestimate the power, the power of our indwelling sin. 
Some of you may remember the Puritan John Owen. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, which means killing sin. He's hard to read, but he is worth it. Here's a quote from John Owen. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time sin rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Every rise of lust, might it have its course, would become the height of villainy. Are we aware that the seeds of every known sin exist in every human heart? Do we know that about ourselves? I I don't mean… Listen, I'm not talking about lip service. On a Sunday school questionnaire, depraved sinner, need a savior. I'm saying, have you felt it? The pull of your own sinful affections and the, the, the crying out to the Lord, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do we understand our need for Jesus? Listen, if sin is not that ferocious, then we don't need that much of a savior. But if sin is really sin or lust in us, There's more mercy in Christ, a Puritan said, than sin in us. Number three, don't be deceived about the consequences of lust. Don't be deceived about the consequences of lust. Now, let me just take a moment here and get specifically theological, okay? Jesus said in our passage, and you can turn back there, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, let me tell you, and I only remember the conversation fragment, in a fragmentary way, but this is a true story. I even was kind of checking with my wife about this to, to get some details. But a number of years ago, I think it was before our church even started, a number of years ago, I was preaching, teaching at another church. And after the sermon, I was talking about sin. After the sermon, a woman came up to me. Uh, not terribly far from my own age, but a woman came up to me after the service, and she was crying almost uncontrollably. She said, can I talk to you? I said, yes. I said, what's, what's wrong? She said, I have a major problem with sexual sin, and I need help. She said, would you meet with me? So I said, well, I'm going to bring my wife, but I will meet with you. And so my wife and I went to dinner with her at a restaurant in Athens, just my wife and I and, and this lady. And I'm keeping this anonymous, so it's not gossip, okay, you don't know who this person is, but th- th- this, this, this woman uh, revealed to Kelly and I that she was absolutely committing un- um, really amazing stuff. I think she had, I think it's the Tinder app, and she was, she was having sex with guys in Athens multiple times every single week. I had never actually seen something this dramatic before like this, and she's a church-going person, a member of a church. She'd prayed to receive Christ. She's baptized, member of a church, all that stuff, right? And she confesses to us, okay, she, she talked about, I had a relationship with this one guy a couple of weeks ago. Even when I was going into the service on Sunday, I had set up with another guy this week that we we're going to get together in a couple of days after the service, and she was just, she was weeping and crying all this, so, so we're having dinner with her. And at the di- this is one of the scary things about sin. On Sunday, she was crying, could not stop. By the time we got to Wednesday or whatever day for the dinner, she didn't seem quite as passionate to talk about it as she'd had on Sunday. 
Do you understand the deceptiveness of sin? Suddenly she was kind of almost, I can almost feel that she almost maybe didn't even want to be there anymore to talk about it. But we're talking about it. And her just almost being okay with her sin at a certain point. I know she wept on Sunday, but by Wednesday she seemed a little bit more nonchalant. At a certain point, she was having so much immorality in her life that was so blatant. I went to this sermon text. I went to Matthew 5 and I quoted it. I said, I, said, I know this may sound pretty direct, but I, Jesus said, when we're struggling with lust, if we're not willing to gouge out an eye or cut off a hand and we live in unrepentant sexual morality, Jesus said, it's better than to be cast into hell, to, to cut off a member than to be cast into hell. And I, I asked her, I said, has this made you have any questions about your assurance of salvation? Because my, I was clearly saying, you're, genuine Christians can sin seriously like David, but they can't live in unrepentant sin. Momentary lapses can be horrible. Peter denied Jesus with cursing in God's name while regenerate, but he went out and wept bitterly. He repented. If the tears don't lead to change, I'm going to start questioning the whole, what's going on here? So we talked, and I will tell you, she, she looked at me like what I had said was the most offensive and detached thing she'd ever heard. She said, what are you, no, I, I've been saved since I was eight. I got baptized in my church. What are you talking about? Of course I'm a Christian. That was her response. And I just, American Christianity has a serious false teaching that if I've prayed the sinner's prayer and been immersed in water, then I'm good. No matter how I live my life, no matter whether there's a war on sin in my life, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about permanent change of direction, a real fight, a transformation. A, I can't live in this anymore. I'm no longer at home in this anymore. Yes, sometimes I fall into the mud, but I want to get back out again. Someone help me. That's the sound of a Christian. The sound of a false or fake Christian. What the Puritans used to call a false professor of faith. The sign of that is, yeah, I know it's bad, but at least I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. And yes, I know, but I mean, I, I, I'll try to get some help sometime. But I, 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 you know, please don't, let's not talk about this too long. It's making me uncomfortable. That's when I become, honestly, very afraid. Am I saying that you can lose your salvation? No. What I'm saying is the evidence of genuine new birth regenerate heart. The evidence is a lifelong battle with indwelling sin. That's the evidence of new birth. Being apathetic and living in it and making your home in it is the sign of false Christianity. Don't put your hope in 12-year-old prayers. Don't put your hope in your youth camp experience. Put your hope in, are you hating your sin today? Do you want to love Jesus more today? Do you want to grow in holiness more now? That is the evidence of a transformed and permanent change of nature that continues through our lives. Before we act out our sin, sometimes it's good to think of the consequences even in this life. So, the eternal consequences of unrepentant sin is to be cast into hell. That's what Jesus said. I'm not saying that. That's what Jesus said. But let's think about some of the other other consequences, even if we're a believer and we commit serious sin like adultery and then have to repent of it, which God forbid that that happens, but listen to what Randy Alcorn writes. What are the consequences of any of us committing adultery and then afterwards repenting truly? Here are 10 consequences. Number one, we would drag the reputation of our Lord through the mud. Number two, we would… we would have, one day we will have to look into the eyes of Jesus and tell Him why we did it. 
We will give an account for every careless word. It will cause untold hurt to our spouse and our loyal, our loyal and best friend, our spouse. Number four, it will forfeit our spouse's respect and trust. Number five, it will permanently injure credibility with our children in some instances. Number six, it will bring great shame to our family. Number seven, it will hurt my church and friends, especially those I've discipled. Number eight, it will bring loss to years of witnessing to relatives and friends. Number nine, it will bring pleasure to Satan, God's enemy. And number ten, it will even bring disrepute and discredit on my name. and a lifelong embarrassment that goes with that? Well, how do we respond to that if we failed? Say, so, well, what if I failed? In my thoughts, in my actions, whether it's pornography addiction, whether it's with a girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever it may be, what do I do if I have failed? I feel terrible right now, maybe you're thinking. I, I, okay, I've, I've failed. I feel horrible. Is it just hopeless? Where's the hope for me? Point number four, it's the last point. Don't be deceived about Christ's sin-destroying power over lust. Don't be deceived about Christ's sin-destroying power over lust. Okay, so a week ago, last Saturday, I attended the funeral of John Deans. Some of you know John Deans. Uh, He was at Watkinsville First Baptist Church for many years, and he was married to his wife for, I think, over 40 years, Diane, and they have a bunch of wonderful children. Uh, John Deans is the first person, along with Papa Fred, who took me out to do evangelism at UGA with students there, and John was a lifelong evangelist, absolutely one of the great evangelists I've ever known in my life. He has a hard time stopping at a gas station without giving someone a track. That was John Deans. He's just an unstoppable force in that regard. And John loved the Lord deeply and greatly, and his funeral... I only brought one little tissue, and I was in some big trouble, okay? It was a lot of tears shed at John Dean's funeral. But why do I bring him up now? Well, a couple things. Number one, he was faithful to his wife and his family his whole life, and his children got up and spoke. His oldest, his son got up and spoke, and it was not a dry eye in the room honoring their father, thanking God that their dad was John Dean's. But the reason I bring this up now, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because this was the passage John, Lee, John Deans lived for, and in the end, upon his death, uh, he embraced the truth of this in eternity. John started a ministry, which is ongoing, it will continue after his death, called The Great Exchange. It's a college evangelism ministry. He raises support, and he goes to UGA and many, they've been to dozens of campuses. I've been with them to multiple campuses around in different places, and it's almost, you know, John will scare you sometimes. He just, well, Mark, why don't you take over this conversation? Just go, you know, he'll just throw you in the deep end with no, no flotation device, and you're like, uh-oh, what am I going to do? So John was amazing at that, and uh, John's verse that the whole ministry was based around was right here, and this is the hope for all of us, because listen… In some form or another, all of us are sexual sinners. All of us need the grace and forgiveness of God. Look, look at these incredible words from 2 Corinthians. I'll start earlier than the verse that he had, uh, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here is the verse the whole ministry was based on, 521. For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the gospel boiled down as brief and as powerful as you can have it. Here's the gospel. We have sinned against God's law in more ways than we know. Do you know that is true? Do you know that you deserve personally the judgment and wrath of God? Do you know that? That if God were to give you what your sins deserve, there is no limit to what punishment should be meted out to fit your case? The more you've known of Scripture and the more you've sinned against it, the more guilty you are because to whom much is given, much is required. And if the Lord Jesus were to right now give you nothing but justice, there is not a person in this room who would make it into the arms of Christ in eternity. Every single one of us would be cast into the lake of fire where there is eternal conscious torment under the just and righteous wrath of an infinite and holy God. And yet that same God loves sinners. Get this, God loves sexual sinners too. Rahab was a prostitute and she was the one saved in Jericho, and that was not the only time God would save a sexually broken person. God sent Jesus. It says here He knew no sin. That means Jesus never broke God's law once. He had impeccable, perfect, spotless righteousness. It is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness, He said at His baptism. Jesus kept all of God's law, never failing once, although He was tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. And the one who knew no sin, when He was placed on the cross, became sin for us. Galatians 3.13 is almost as great as this verse. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And God poured out His just wrath on Christ, His spotless Son, because Jesus had taken by imputation our sin onto Himself. God treated Jesus on the cross as if He lived your sinful life. And now, if you will turn from sin and trust in Jesus, no matter what wreckage you have in your past, if you will trust in Christ with genuine faith out of a regenerate heart that loves Him and trusts Him truly and hates sin, if you will cling to Christ in that very moment from initial saving faith, God will take all your sin away from you and He will take all the spotless obedience and righteousness of Jesus who never sinned sexually or in any other way and He will clothe you in the spotless robes of His Son's righteousness so that one day you, you could stand before God and instead of judgment, you could see the smile of his face and hear what John Deans heard eight days or so, no, two weeks ago, when he slipped into eternity, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy 
of your Lord. Let's bow our heads together. The grace of God has appeared. Titus 2 says, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we long for the appearing and the return of Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray for those listening right now, whether listening in person or perhaps listening online. God, I pray for them right now, whether male or female, who are enslaved to the sin of lust. It's hard for them to go just a few weeks or months without serious failure. There is a slavery, slavery of sin. Lord, I pray that You would break the chains of sinful slavery and that You would set us free and make us slaves of righteousness, which is a liberating slavery. God, I pray right now that You would do the miracle in all of our hearts that You would show us that holiness is more to be desired than anything in this world. Show us, God, that living water does not flow from this world. It only comes from You. Please wash us of our uncleanness, cleanse us of our idols. Give us what we need to break free, God, and empower us by Your transforming and pardoning grace to give us great freedom, great joy, so we can be like the woman at the well. After all that sexual failure, she drops the water bucket and she runs out to tell others, I've met the Christ. God, give us that freedom, that self-forgetfulness that comes from the joy of truly knowing You. Give us transformation. We pray this all... For your glory, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.